may we completely realize the Tathagata's true meaning. We could just say that over and over. The Tathagata is the thus come one, the one who has come to thusness. And maybe after this week-long session, we have a taste of what coming to thusness might be like. This week we did the Parinirvana Sashin, which is the Sashin usually held in, in February, a time of honoring the Buddha's death. In Japan, in the monasteries, they usually do just two Sashin a year, in most monasteries. And one is the one uh, in December, usually, called Rohatsu, celebrating the Buddha's enlightenment, which happened when he was in his 30s. And then the other is the Parinirvana Sashin in February, celebrating the Buddha's death, which they call Nirvana without remainder, so without the physical body remaining in order to teach in person. Of course, here are the Buddha's teachings alive and well. So is alive and well. During this week of Parinirvana Sashin, we were commemorating the Buddha's death by working with practices related to death. Because if the Buddha died, and how the Buddha died, and what the Buddha did up leading up to his death, can really inform us about our own death. So during this Sashin, we chanted the verse of the Diamond Sutra, so let's just chant that. It's on page. <laughs> 78. If anybody needs a sutra book, just pass them back. No, you don't have to get up. Just pass a few books back. Page 78. We can just chant it once through so we know what we've been chanting every day. Anybody else need a book? Verse of the Diamond Sutra, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. So is this fleeting world. This is a very beautiful sutra to help bring alive to us something that we know tucked in the back corners of our mind that our life is just like that less than that in the eons of time since human beings have existed. And yet for each of us, as Jogan said, for each of us, it's a wide open span of time. When we're young, it seems endless. And when we get old, it speeds up. We would chant this sutra during session, speeding it up faster and faster and faster, which is what happens with life as you reach middle age. and approach your own death. It all seems to speed up so quickly, and we realize it will be over in an instant at any time. But this is something we have to face. We can't keep running away from it, or it will cause us great distress. So we chanted the verse of the Diamond Sutra. We chanted the five remembrances. So those of you, we don't have to, is it in the book, five remembrances? OK, give the page. 65. 65? We'll chant the five remembrances once through. When these, this, we, these we say, we don't chant. The five remembrances. I am of the nature to grow old. There is no es to escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape having ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love 
are of the nature of change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. My deeds are the grant's companions. I am the beneficiary of my deeds. My deeds are the ground on which I stand. Thank you. So every day we chanted those verses, uh, Diamond Sutra, 27 times, and the five remembrances three times. So it's important to do this day after day so it really sinks in because our level of denial is so high especially in this society where we hide illness and death. Our level of denial is so high, we have to walk straight up, open, part the curtains that keep us from seeing this and look straight at it. Always in Zen practice, whatever we're running away from, whatever we're afraid of, we learn that that controls us as long as we keep running from it. And the only way to resolve it is to walk straight up to it and look at it with ferocious concentration, penetrate into it and walk through it. We did meditation on impermanence, taking impermanence as the meditation subject, our awareness of impermanence, hour after hour after hour. We did a meditation on our own death and rebirth with each breath called last breath, the out breath, the last breath, the in breath, the first breath. Again, doing that over and over and over again helps us let go, let go, let go completely of the past, step clean into the next moment, which is the best preparation for stepping through the door we call death. Now we took a walk through our own death and what, it, what could occur in the years afterwards, after we pop out of our body and see it die and watch what happens in a few days and one week year and five years and ten years and a hundred years and two hundred years. A very wonderful meditation. We use death stories and death poems from the old Zen masters. Here are a few. Empty-handed I entered the world. Barefoot I leave it. My coming, my going. Two simple happenings that got entangled. So in that poem, the word entangled is really interesting. My coming, my going, two simple happenings, birth and death, but in the middle, a tangle. So what is that tangle? What causes that tangle? What do we get entangled in? Dizziness, anxiety, the delusion of a suffering self. How does that happen, and how can we untangle that tangle? And then Huckwin's Zenji, oh, young folk, if you fear death, die now. Having died once, you won't die again. Very famous Zen saying. If you die once, if you really die once, and that doesn't mean keel over and physically die on the cushion, but it means to keep letting go of this constructed illusion of a self and all the fear and anxiety and distress that's tangled up in it. If we really thoroughly do that, fear of death dissolves. Oh, young folk, if you fear death, die now. Having died once, you won't die again. And then there's the hope of rebirth, which we didn't talk about. But as we get older, there are a couple of things that happen. I was once asking my grandmother, who lived to 99, I said, I said her name, we called her Grandmommy. I said, Grandmommy, if you if you could live again, what, what do you think you would? If you live, live parts of your life over again, what would you do? What would you live again? And she looked at me and she said, honey, grandma's too old to want to live again. <laughs> so, I'm beginning to know that feeling like, oh, a fresh body. All right. <laughs> because as you get older, you accumulate aches and pains, and when they first arise, they, they're a surprise. Oh my gosh, oh no, this hurts now, oh no. And it doesn't go away, but it just gets put into the background of all the other aches and pains. <laughs> then another one arises, and oh no, a new ache and pain, and then it just gets put into the background. And, and that's the way it goes, bit by bit. Huh? 
we get accustomed to this body, living in this body. But really the thought that this practice goes on and on and on and it keeps unfolding in front of us, this path, and that whatever discoveries we've made and whatever we've let go of in this life, to think that we might get more lives in order to keep going with the practice is really a, a wonderful gift. So then another poem, this is my favorite. Although I don't drink alcohol, I think this is a cute one. <laughs> Bury me when I die beneath a wine barrel in a tavern. With luck, the cask will leak. intoxicated with the Dharma. Not bad, not bad. With luck, with luck, I will be born in a place where enlightenment will leak, saturate my being again in a more thorough way. We read small bits of the story in the Pali Canon of the Buddha's death 2,560 years ago. This account is called the Parinirvana Sutta, and it's fascinating to read when you read it knowing that the Buddha knows that he's going to die in a few months. It reveals to us how an enlightened being lives when they know that their life, they know the exact span of their life, they know that they will live only a few months. We all have that question, how will I live the last three months of my life? And in this account, we get to see how someone lives their life when they're not afraid of death, of the great disassembling, as it's called. In this account, the Buddha continues to live his ordinary Buddha life. It's very ordinary, actually, remarkably ordinary. He travels from place to place, as he always has done for 45 years, and he stops where he's asked to teach. Usually a group offers him and his disciples a meal, which was traditional since the, that was the only way the Buddha and his disciples ate, was by being given food, offered food. And then afterwards he gives a Dharma talk. And the content of each of these talks is very interesting. He is not inventing novel and entertaining ways of trying to help people out of mind-created suffering. You might think, towards the end of his life, he thinks, oh gosh, I just have three months. I better really give it to them. I really, I just, I just got to stuff them full of dharma. Got to think of some new way to get them to get it. So he's not putting on a last tour, extra special celebrity event with half-naked dancing girls like Mara's daughters invited in for the show or pyrotechnics or using what we call psychic abilities. He's not using mind reading or magic in order to pull in a larger crowd. In the sutra, they, in all the sutras, they talk about the Buddha's ability to embrace mind with mind. So when someone comes before him, because his mind is so spacious and clear, he's able to feel what is in a person's mind related to suffering and enlightenment specifically, and then knows how to address that person. He could demonstrate those skills, but actually he, he's, he forbids that to his disciples. But he could do that if he wanted to. He does what he has done for 45 years, teaching what he has taught for 45 years since his enlightenment. He teaches again the Four Noble Truths. He teaches the Eightfold Path. He, see, he teaches the seven factors on enlightenment, and he teaches about the fetters that prevent us from moving forward on the path. Often in practice we discover, oh, that's basic. Oh, breath practice, that's basic. Counting my breath, that's basic. I'm beyond that. But when we return to it, after years of practice, we return to it, we discover it opens up again. 
he informs us again in a new way. So the Buddha knows that. He's just saying, these are the, these are the truths, and I'm presenting them to you again. Hopefully you'll receive them in a new way, different from the last time. Because hopefully you have been practicing while I was gone. He teaches the three-legged platform of practice, precepts, samadhi, and insight, and concentration. And what I didn't know before, um, before I prepared for this talk, was how often he teaches concentration. I found some new sources of accounts of the Buddha's life right before his death. And he teaches concentration over and over as fundamental. So we practice concentration sprints. So, so for those of you who weren't in the session, and of course for those who were, we'll do a one-minute concentration sprint. So what you do is you first have to summon the intention to concentrate for one minute on one thing. And if you notice the mind edging off into wandering, you just gently bring it back and bring it right back to the purpose. Just like driving a car, and you're driving straight, and then you notice, oh, your mind wandered and the car wandered. Bring it back straight down the road, right down the middle of the road. So a good thing to pick is, is breath. And we concentrate on the out-breath in as much detail as you can. The out-breath, the pause, the letting go, and then the in-breath, out in breath Or you could say last, last breath on the out-breath. And then the pause is, oh, I died. Oh, and then in-breath. Oh, no, I get to live again for another breath. Okay, so use breath however you want to concentrate on it. And we'll do a concentration sprint for one minute. Ready, set, go. stop. Then we relax the mind into open awareness. Nothing to do, nowhere to go. Open awareness. And then we would pick up a concentration sprint again. During that concentration sprint, I noticed my mind wandered once and it, <laughs> it wandered and it said, this is like a sobriety test. <laughs> right? <laughs> When the policeman stops you and you have to walk down, not, it has never happened to me, but I know what it is. You have to walk a line. <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah, that's like a, like a walk a line. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Just stay with it, stay with it, stay with it. It's truly a sobriety test. Wonderful. So this is something you can do anywhere, anytime. That's a beautiful thing about our practice. It doesn't, it isn't confined to the zendo. Once you learn something, you can carry it anywhere. So you can do a concentration sprint when you walk at the end of this talk from the zendo to the cafeteria, concentrating on your feet, maybe. Or from your car to the post office. When you park your car and you get out and go to the store, concentration sprint. Or when you're driving your car, to town, you can concentrate on, there's a hundred things to concentrate on, three. You can concentrate on your hands on the wheel and how many tiny adjustments they make to keep the car going straight. They're taking care of you. You watch your hands taking care of you and your feet. Your body's taking care of you while you're driving. It's a miracle. So you watch that. And of course, you can concentrate on the road ahead, too. For one mile, you say, okay, for this mile, concentration sprint. Really, really going to focus like we did when we were learning to drive, right? 
we're learning to drive. We're just like, oh no, oh, oh we're in the center, and there's a, oh no, I'm close, too close to the line. Oh, there's a car coming. Oh, I gotta pay attention. I gotta pay attention. Don't stray, like that. But without the anxiety, because <laughs> we're now skilled. We're now skilled, so we can do it without the anxiety and just the concentration. Concentration helps clear the mind of extra rubbish that naturally accumulates over the course of the day or even over the course of a few minutes. Right? All this stuff invades. So concentration helps us push it to the side and clear the mind. And concentration is the foundation for relaxing into what we call natural mind, or it has all these fancy names like awakened awareness or view or spacious awareness mind or boundless mind. But in Zen, we call it ordinary mind, meaning not the ordinary mind you, we're used to using day to day, but our original ordinary mind, our original natural mind, the natural mind that underlies the crazy person mind. We have to learn to concentrate on one object like the breath before we can let go and concentrate on the surround, what we call mind ground, or sometimes called ground of being, So let's try that just for one minute. So first, you begin by concentrating on the breath. A little concentration sprint on the breath. With as much detail as you can. going to shrink the, that down to a small icon on the screen of our awareness. It's still going, of course. Our body is still breathing. We're still aware of it, but it doesn't fill the whole screen of our awareness. Instead, we do a figure ground reversal, and we open our awareness to what is around the breath. And what can help is to open our awareness to the spaciousness, the emptiness in this room. Because in this room there is a person called I breathing, but there are many people breathing. But instead of focusing on the objects, the people, and my breath, we allow it to continue, but we open our awareness into the emptiness, the space that really is this room. our mind to relax into that spaciousness, as much spaciousness as there is in the room, or even more. Dissolving that artificial boundary called walls, and just letting the mind relax into its natural, open, aware space. one of those little icons opens up as a thought and fills our awareness, we notice, and we just shrink it back down. Okay, I've heard you back down. I'm more interested in spacious awareness. Closed, opening your eyes. So that is a touch of what we call in Zen natural mind or ordinary mind. So the ordinary mind that we use is different from this ordinary mind. And at first, this seems extraordinary to let go of the tangle, the entanglement open into the space around it. At first that seems quite extraordinary. 
But the more we practice it, the more we realize, oh, this is, this is how human beings should live. This is, this is how my mind should work. Spacious, open, aware, and then when I need to think, oh, yeah, I'd bring in the thoughts. But there's clarity of the thoughts then rather than tangling. There are many touching moments in the Parinirvana Sutta. People keep on pestering the Buddha with their worries, as was their want, all through his life. The Buddha knows he's dying, but he hasn't told anybody. So people just keep on coming to him with their little worries. So the king, Ajitasattu, wants to know if he will be able to conquer the neighboring kingdom. That's what he considered his job is to keep on conquering and expanding the empire, so he wants to get employment, a certain, certain kind of job advice <laughs> from, the, from, the, from the Buddha. So the Buddha listens, and instead of giving the king advice about how to conquer the Vijayans in the neighboring kingdom, the Buddha gives a teaching on how to conquer oneself. And the essence of the teaching is that if there is harmony within, whether within a kingdom or within an individual, then they will thrive. He gives a teaching that if there are agreeable and kind ways to resolve conflict, whether in a nation or in an individual, then they will thrive. So that conflict Personal conflict could be with another person or it could be the conflict of the voices within us. And he gives a teaching that if there is a sacred shrine, as there was in the city of the Vigians, in the center of the city where everybody worshipped, if there is a sacred shrine, meaning a spiritual foundation, in the heart, whether in the heart of the city or the heart of an individual, then they will thrive. So that shrine, that spiritual foundation, helps us when we get drawn into this harmony, those agreements, it helps us bring us back to that which will make us thrive. At one point, Ananda asked the Buddha about 12 different ordained monks, nuns, and, ma and male and female lay followers who were very ardent followers who have died. Jogan mentioned this in his talk. So Ananda lists all these people. He says, this person died, and this person died, and that person died, and that 12 of them. And he says to the Buddha, okay, now tell me, what is their destination? How will they be reborn? In what realm will they be reborn? And so the Buddha asks, answers for each one of them in detail. And he says, well, because this person did this, these practices and attained this state of awareness, then uh, this will be their destination. So he answers for each one in detail. And then he says, and he says it to Ananda. Ananda is his cousin who has known him all of his life and been his personal attendant pretty much uh, his whole teaching life. He says, Ananda... It is not remarkable that what has come to be as a person should die. But what is remarkable is that you should come to ask the fate of each of those who have died. That is a weariness. <laughs> that is a weariness. <laughs> it's like, please don't bother me with the trivia. <laughs> I have more important things to teach. Teach you, and then, and then the Buddha says, "Therefore, I will teach you how to know which direction you're headed." And then he gives Ananda teaching on how to know. So we call this. You know, there are many different ways to check on your own practice. Checking is one name for it. But he teaches them how to how to look. Are you headed in the direction of enlightenment or not? Really, that's the Buddha's, the Buddha's, Occam's razor. You know, whatever is happening, you just look at it and say, "Is this?" leading me to enlightenment or to suffering. And if it's leading me to suffering, you pull the cart of your being back and you direct it down the road that leads to enlightenment. It's not that difficult. But the Buddha 
gives this teaching to Ananda, and Ananda is not yet enlightened. This is one of Ananda's great sorrows. And when the Buddha does die, Ananda weeps, weeps, because he feels like his last chance to become enlightened has now been extinguished. So that's part of the ceremony we did last night when we turned out the lights. And we know that everyone was grieving greatly for the Buddha's death, but especially Ananda, because Ananda had been with him for decades and actually had memorized everything the Buddha taught. He was there for almost all of everything the Buddha taught, and if he wasn't there, he would go and ask another person to recite to him, because this is a pre-written-down age, so everything was kept in memory, so they had prodigious memories, and the Buddha and Ananda remembered everything that the Buddha had taught word for word. But even so, even though he had taken it in to his mind in the form of this amazing ability to memorize, it hadn't penetrated to the place where awakening occurred. So here's the Buddha teaching Ananda. And then when the when in the last few hours of his life, when Ananda is weeping, Ananda withdraws from the Buddha and leans up against a, he's so overcome with sorrow, he leans up against a doorpost and weeps. And the Buddha, from his deathbed, lying on his side between the two sala trees, which are dropping, blooming out of season and dropping their blossoms, the Buddha says, Ananda, haven't I told you over and over again that all compounded things must dissolve? things, all things that are put together out of the five elements as we are, when that glue through cause and effect loosens, then it'll dissolve. It's very simple. Also, in the last few hours of his life, as the Buddha is lying there and some of his disciples are gathered around, and some lay followers who hear that the Buddha is dying come. The Buddha hears from his deathbed Ananda arguing with a lay follower who has just come and has a question he wants to ask the Buddha. It's like, oh, my last chance. And Ananda is, the Buddha can hear Ananda saying, don't bother him. Don't bother him now. Of all times, honor, revere this time. He's dying. But then the Buddha hears him and he says, no, it's fine. Let, let him come because he comes in quest of enlightenment. He comes in quest of enlightenment. So the Buddha can read that earnest burning in the man's heart when the man is a, comes forth and asks this question of the Buddha. And then the Buddha asks everyone who's gathered, don't hold back. If you have a question that you've been hiding in your heart, please ask it now. And if you feel like you can't ask it, tell it to another person and have them ask it for you. Please. So the Buddha says that is a weariness when you ask irrelevant questions. Right? Irrelevant. Somebody else's destination. Don't worry about their destination. That's their path. What is your destination? And your path. And indeed, the Buddha was growing weary. He was 80 years old, and he says, this body is being kept going by being strapped up, like an old cart being held together by straps. It is only when the Tathagata withdraws his attention from outward signs and by the cessation of certain feelings and enters into the signless concentration that this body knows relief. So at one point he says to Ananda Might that his back is hurting and he wants to lie down with the sun on his back. So Ananda prepares a folded robe as a pad for him and the Buddha lies down so that the sun will warm his aching back. But what he's saying is that only by practicing, by deep practicing with a body that's falling apart, that he can maintain equanimity and keep going and doing what he's called to do. And later he becomes dehydrated because he gets bad diarrhea. 
and he asks Ananda, he lies down very weak, and he asks Ananda to please get him a drink of water. And Ananda demurs and says, no, the, the water over there is muddy because there people have been crossing the little stream. So let's wait till we get to, to the river that where the water will be clean. And then, but then Buddha asks again, and you can tell that he's really suffering. But he says very patiently to Ananda, please, please get me a drink of water. And Ananda says, no, no, the stream is too muddy, I can't, I'll wait. And then the Buddha asks a third time, and three times is very significant in Buddhism. Three times means you really can't refuse. So Ananda goes and finds that the water has miraculously cleared, and he's able to bring the Buddha, the dying Buddha, some water. This is extraordinary, that this extraordinary being, this spiritually gifted, enlightened being, is simultaneously an ordinary human being. And this is exactly the mystery of our own lives, that we are simultaneously awakened life, awakening human form, the mystery of our own lives, simultaneously an ordinary human being who bumbles around and suffers and gets sick and dies, and simultaneously we are enlightenment, enlightenment in human form. This is the mystery of each of our own lives and the promise of our practice that we will be able to see this and live this. Somebody asked a question that I didn't have time to address in the talks during Sashin. So I thought I would address it now. There were two questions. How can we let go of loved ones when they die? And how can we help our loved ones let go and meet death? So this is a difficult question. If we really love someone, we don't want them to disappear from our lives. May we be left alone. That's a very sad thing to contemplate. And there's no question it leaves a hole in our lives. It leaves a hole, a unique hole. We could say shaped like that unique human being. And that hole will never be filled by another person. that hole is uniquely shaped like that person. But over time, that hole softens and it fills in. It fills in with, well, you'll find out. <laughs> I talked to Aiken Roshi after his wife died and they had been married, married many decades. And been a, been a very supportive and beautiful couple for each other in the practice. And after she died, I called him about 10 days later and asked him how he was doing. And he said, you know, the most remarkable thing has happened. Since she died, all, all of the difficult memories have disappeared completely. And she's become a saint. <laughs> he said, that used to be so irritating to me when people would <laughs> remember their loved ones as a saint. And now it's happened to me. <laughs> Aiken Roshi was so pleased, he was so honest so, about watching his mind and his heart. So there will be a hole, there will be a longing, there will be a sorrowing. There's no question about it. But we have the tools of practice to work with it. So my mother died 10 years ago, and we were, she was a wonderful mother. And periodically, it happened more right after she died, of course, but still it happens. I'll think, oh, I really want mom to, I really want to show that to my mom. She would love to taste this. And then it just comes up all of a sudden. And so I can feel the, the sadness arising. Like, it's gone, it's gone. 
But if I drop immediately into the body and feel what sadness is in the body and don't add a story, oh, I wish, oh, brother, oh, if only we, you know, that sort of thing. Don't add any of that. Take, take the training and use it. Drop into the body and feel the constriction in the throat, the moisture in the eyes, the aching in the head. And just feel that and feel that that is the symbol of my love for him. And feel that love and stay with it as it changes and changes and changes and changes and fades. Okay? That strong feeling, that surge of feeling. The underlying feeling of love doesn't change. So that's one way to work with it. Okay? Many ways in our practice to work with the grief that we feel over loved one who died, who have died. There's the story of Yasutani Roshi, one of his lay disciples whom he gave transmission to. So Yasutani Roshi is my Dharma great-grandfather, Nagini Roshi's teacher. And he had a number of uh, disciples. He had many lay disciples because he was a teacher. He was married and had a family as one can in Japan when you're ordained. And one of his uh, transmitted lay disciples was an elderly woman. And one of the other uh, Sangha members came in and found her weeping and wailing and said to her, what's the matter with you? You're, you're supposed to be enlightened. You got transmission. You're supposed to be enlightened. Why are you crying? And she says, because my granddaughter died. And then she goes, boo-hoo-hoo, and cries and cries and cries. Hmm? That's a natural human reaction to have grief when we're separated from those we love. But we don't cling to that grief. We don't cling to them. We let them go on their path. However it continues, we don't know. We don't want to prevent them. We don't want to hold them. We don't want to bind them in our grief. We want to support them in their path forward for as much as we can. We feel our grief. We feel our love. We feel our sorrow. We watch it arise, exist for a while, disappear, and we let them go. Two people that we've had in the Sangha who have gotten diagnoses of potentially fatal illness, and it's very been very interesting to watch them. So one was a number of years ago, a woman who was diagnosed with breast cancer, and very worried, very anxious about, about it in the intervening days between the biopsy and going to see the doctor to get the results of the biopsy. So she went to the doctor in Portland and got the results that it was breast cancer. And she said as she left, his office and stepped out into the, the world outside the building, everything was exquisitely beautiful. Exquisitely beautiful. And everything else had dropped away. And that experience she was able to carry with her with a kind of equanimity into you know, what she had to do after that. She actually survived fine. But that experience never left her. And another experience that sustained her that she's had in Sashin, where um, she was, her mind was quite agitated, and I gave her a dandelion flower. And I said, I want you to sit for an hour with this dandelion flower as close to your eyes as you can, but you can still see it, and absorb yourself in the dandelion flower. And she had a wonderful experience. And she carried that with her as a, as a refuge forever of her life, she's still alive, but she never had forgotten that, and that also sustained her in that, in that dark time. That dandelion, the heart of the dandelion. So anything, as Thich Nhat Hanh said, that we look into deeply will open and become a universe. And that universe will help us get perspective on our lives. Question, how can we help our loved ones go and meet death? Well, that's a tricky one by letting go ourselves, by being calm ourselves, by being loving and present ourselves, by not being afraid of death ourselves. Right? The best preparation. Sometimes in our, we have a death class where we talk about this a fair amount and 
people who've studied Tibetan Buddhism, often they're very worried. And they say, well, my mother is a devout Christian, and she's dying, and I want to read her the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. But, and, I, and I look at them, I say, don't read her the Tibetan Book of the Dead. You don't want to agitate somebody with some foreign teaching, which they regard as cultish. Like, oh, in the last hours of their death, no. Live, live from the Tibetan Book of the Dead if you want to, but don't pester them into your idea of what they should be doing with their lives. Work hard for spiritual life. All you can do is be their inspiration. One way to help is, Kodo, for example, is part of No One Dies Alone. It's an organization that trains you to go and sit with people who are dying alone in the hospital. You get a call, and you can ask Kodo about it, and you go and sit with them. Or you can do hospice work. And any of that will help us prepare for death, our own death and the death of our loved ones. One of my, um, one of our children is a hospice nurse, and periodically I ask him about his experience of how people die. And I was asking him just last week about what do people report that they see when they die? And he said, many, many, many people report seeing loved ones and children. He said, children is actually the most common. Children sometimes. Very interesting. So I want to read you, just to finish, uh, this is another person who is a very ardent practitioner. I've known her for years. Um, she's not part of our sangha, but she does come here sometimes and does retreats with another sangha. And she's had, uh, she's a mental, a mental health therapist, uh, works with abusing parents and abused children, and she has multiple sclerosis. She's been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which is advancing fairly fast uh, in the last few years, but she has kept on working and she has a very loving partner. And um, she went in a couple of weeks ago for some kind of minor ailment or a checkup, and they found that she had very advanced, very aggressive cancer. So it went from, this is my life, and I've adjusted to multiple sclerosis to suddenly this devastating diagnosis. So here is her description. As she left the oncologist's office uh, after getting this potentially devastating diagnosis. Sitting while waiting to talk to her oncologist, au revoir to the organs that were removed in surgery that had cancer number of organs, and a part heretofore unknown called omentum. Omentum is is a membrane that holds your internal organs together. A part heretofore unknown called omentum, which they had to remove part of, which sorely challenges the spell check, which corrects it to momentum. The momentum of this event in my life is a storm force gale. Sudden propulsion through time, relationships, mortality, emotions, regimens and pills, appointments and messages. Momentum of the mysterious body tied to the really mysterious idea of life. Who knew that the biggest brain scientists have yet to de definitively determine how life came to be on our planet? Or I could say how life came to be, period. Since the only life yet found is here, this place, these species, marvelous, heading towards extinction or overpopulation, or mutation or the next traffic jam, war zone, smoky kitchen, doctor appointment, or love nest. A friend asked me, how are you doing with all of this love pouring out to you? because everyone is, now that she has this diagnosis, just pouring love out to her. I think the love is the ocean I float on and the sun on the ocean and the sky as I look up while floating. The winds that blow that push the clouds across the sky and scallop the water's surface. The winds are strong, but the ocean of love can't be blown away, can it? I am in awe of my friends and all your help and love, especially her partner, who can somehow go to the depths of feeling while maintaining clarity and presence for me and everyone who come in contact with, I would be lost without him. 
and oh, last, I wanted to read a poem that's related to this. By Mary Oliver. When death comes, like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me, and snaps the purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering, what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea, and I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular, and each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending, as all music does, toward silence, and each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. Thank you for your earnest practice. Thank you for your willingness to face the truths of impermanence 